0: I'm Adam Robert Lewis and you're listening to Brewing Actors Podcast. My chance to talk to actors to hear their stories, what inspired their performances, and what decisions or relationships influenced their work. On today's episode. I hadn't worked from
1: January till May. I, I, I was playing the Dame in Panto at Basildon and my next job was doing scenes with Tom Hardy and Hathaway and Gary Oldman that, it, that's and it was like a six month and, and do you know what mate I don't mind admitting it I was standing there and I was like I'm about to get fucking found out I, I'm like I've blagged my way in um, but what I did was I just because I'd watched so much film I kind of knew that stylistically everything had to be a lot smaller but I watched Dan Hathaway I had to stand behind her Um, and hold hold a gun up to her head. I thought, mate, you'll love this, I thought I was in short, I was giving it all my best, like, fucking looks. It was literally like my belly in my hand
0: with a gun. My guest today is Scottish actor Cameron Jack. Born in Glasgow, Cameron's earliest experiences of acting was watching films with his father, an experience that cemented his ambition to pursue acting. In 1992, he received the Margaret Rutherford Scholarship to study at Mountview Academy of Theatre Arts. Graduating in 1995, he set out on an eclectic career, appearing in everything from West End musicals to independent British films and Hollywood blockbusters. In 2011, he was cast in his first feature film role in the final part of Christopher Nolan's Batman trilogy, The Dark Knight Rises. Since then, Cameron has gone on to appear in such films as the UK thriller Level Up and the acclaimed sci-fi thriller What Happened to Monday with Noomi Rapace, Glenn Close and Willem Dafoe. In 2016, he appeared in the feature films Eye Boy, Death Race Beyond Anarchy, Perfect Skin and Calibre in which he appeared as Frank MacLea. The film was a huge international hit and won the prestigious Michael Powell Award for Best British Film in 2018 at the Edinburgh International Film Festival. So, like any story, we have to start at the very beginning.
1: I was born in Glasgow, as you can hear from my accent. My dad was a welder in the shipyards and my mum was a cleaner. And an auxiliary nurse at the children's hospital in Glasgow, York Hill.
0: Were they did they do any theatre? Were they like part of the amateur theatre in gla- nah. Glasgow
1: No, nope. nothing. Nothing at all. The old man was the old man was a shipbuilder. Um and my mum came from a rough they both did. They both my mum came from a place called Temple, my dad came from a place called Mary Hill. Which, if you, if you ever watch Tiger, that's where the police station is. <laughs> Fictional, um, but but they were both from very working class backgrounds. Not not um, certainly not poverty stricken, but not in the slightest well off at all. Um, so it wasn't really a thing that would appeal to them, or that they would have any knowledge of, really. Um, but what I will say about my dad, my dad passed away in 2016. I've got a, his date of death, just to be cheerful, mate. tattooed on my my arm, as you can see. Um, my dad had a massive interest in cinema. So once once his shipyards collapsed, um, don't get me started on Thatcher. Um, once his shipyards collapsed a, bit, uh, collapsed a bit like the mining communities, my old man had to go away a lot. So he worked up in the Shetland Islands. And when he came home, I'd be about 10. So my mum would maybe go out with her pals, but we would watch movies. So I had a really deep knowledge of film around about 9, 10, 11. We watched horror, we watched thrillers, uh, watched a lot of black and white films, watched disaster movies, and it always stuck in my head. And I spoke about that at his funeral. I was just. I became obsessed with films, and that was that was simply my dad. So, in answer to your question, long winded as usual by me, um, the theatre wasn't accessible. But I remember we were the first family in the street to get a video recorder. It's one of those top loader things that used to used to spring up at the top. You stick the tape in, Um, so we would watch my old man. But it's weird, my old man. (laughs) Seemed to have no awareness of how shocking some of the horror films were. So I watched The Exorcist from my dad when I was about 10. The Hills Have Eyes, The Evil Dead, um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I like how I absorbed it. <laughs> it's quite disturbing. But I absorbed what he loved. And his, he showed me a film when I was a little boy called The Night of the Hunter. Robert Mitchell. Which, uh, Yeah, Robert Mitchum. Yeah, Yeah, fantastic film. It's my favourite film. Um, And it was Charles Lawton who directed it, who got slated um, at the time for this kind of masterpiece that it became. And I remember watching it, and Robert Mitchum was incredible in it. Kids were great. Shelley Winters was awesome. But it it was such a haunting film, and I think that is the one. It's always always at the top of my favourite film list. But it's funny you know that because a lot of people don't
0: know that film. No, I used to, Funny enough, this uh, topic came up in conversation the other day, and I was saying that my parents and my grandparents never censored anything. I mean, no. within reason. I, I mean, but yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I would watch Alien. I would watch King yeah. Kong. I watched a lot of old black and white movies, and I just, I just loved Hollywood movies. Yeah, I did as well. And actually, that's one of the films I used. I watched years ago. And I recommended it to somebody else the other day. Um, So your father influenced you in terms of cinema, in terms of film, Hollywood. Yeah. Um, Did you do any performance at school? What was school like for you? Um, I hated
1: school from the first day of primary school to the last day of secondary school. I hated it. I hated... I hated the... Competitive aspect of it, ironically, because we have to be competitive to keep our heads above water. I hated the the fact that a bell rang. You had to be there at a specific time. I hated wearing a uniform. Um, I hated... Academically, I was poor, so I struggled, particularly in things like maths, technical drawing. Um, so I, I felt really at a loss when I was at school. Um, but the first time I set foot on a stage, <clears throat> I must have been about seven. And I, mate, I've may told this story a few times. So, But I, I did a stand-up act when I was about seven or eight, and I told jokes. And I remember the punters at the school, like people's mums and dads and grannies and grandpas, rough as arses, you know, um, just sitting there giggling. And I was like, oh, this is quite good. And then I got to secondary school, and... I did a couple of things at secondary school. I discovered that I could sing. Um, Not as well as you, but I could could sing. And I did a couple of things at secondary school, but I do remember making a conscious decision to pack it in because it was considered, it's a terrible thing to say now, especially with the world as it is, but it was considered quite a camp thing to do. Mm. So I I just wanted to be one of the boys. So I, I stepped away from it, played a lot of football badly, Um, And then I was so poor academically and at every job I did, I was just like, there's got to be something I can do. There has to be something I'm good at that I can actually get out of bed and enjoy. And I started doing, like a lot of us, I started doing arm drum. But um, with the singing, um, it was always musical theatre. And that's really how I ended up at Mountview because I was so kind of, ignorant about Lambda, Rada, Guildhall, Bristol. There was no actors in the family. I, I didn't know, I didn't know an actor. You know, I, I couldn't have found you an actor. You we,
0: couldn't call somebody up and say... Nobody.
1: It, but I worked, I worked in the council when I was a bit, probably about 19 and a girl that worked with me there, her sister was a successful Scottish actress, Barbara Rafferty. So Barbara, God love her, she sat me down and just gave me advice. So, that's really why I ended up at Mount View, which is where I met you, obviously. I had the pleasure of directing you. Um, if I could go back and do it all again, I probably wouldn't have done a musical theatre course because I was more... I was always more interested in the film side of things, TV, film, camera work. And to a degree, straight theatre, but... <sighs> I think if I was to go back and do it all again, I would have tried for another school. Having said that, good time at Mount View, and they really looked after me, so I was lucky.
0: So, you only auditioned for M- a Mount View, you didn't. That was right. the only
1: place I went. So, because what- I just never knew Adam, I, mm. I was like, I didn't really know. I knew there was a place called Guildford, and I heard that there was a place <laughs> called Arts Educational. Um, but I was surrounded by musical theatre uh, amateurs. So if anybody was to advise me, it was always go and do musical theatre, go and do musical theatre. And looking back, my heart wasn't really in it. Um, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed aspects of it. But I've, I've ended up w- not where I wanted to be, but I've certainly ended up much more in the field that I that I, I literally, it sounds a bit dramatic, but I, I dreamt about working in when I was sitting with my dad watching those films.
0: obviously I did the musical theatre course a postgraduate. And yeah, I think did. there yeah. was it yeah. was heavily musical theatre based, of course it was. But there was an, an mm. element of film, a very small um I yeah. think it was a maybe a six week course on camera acting. Yeah. Which sort of give you mm. gave you a flavor of potentially doing a bit of screen. Did they have anything like that yeah. when you were there?
1: Yeah and Fairness to my View they absolutely did. Right. And I had an amazing teacher who anybody who knows the history of Mountview they'll remember this guy. He was called Richard Martin. And he was a very, very prominent TV director in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, right up into the 80s. And he was, we were like polar opposites, he had a cravat. He looked like Andy Warhol. And he was so posh, but Jesus, we just, we just sparked. And he he planted a seed. He literally said to me, you he said you, you you might be good at this, you know, if you if you work at this, and despite the fact that I was on a the musical theatre course, Mountview, I, I ended up doing a writing course with a guy called Tony McHale, who wrote EastEnders and a. Uh, Hobie City and Casualty and El Dorado, which was that soap that tanked, so it it was definitely definitely there. They, they did, but that's when the seed got planted. I think that my dad and then sitting in the camera classes feeling much more excited about doing about that than doing a tap class or even a singing mm. a singing
0: lesson. Because there was a few people. I think in View on a musical theatre course when I was there, they thought mm, maybe I wanted to do more straight acting and 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 tried mm. to change. And I think one or two did swap yeah. over. Is that something you want? I wasn't allowed. Do?
1: I wasn't allowed. I asked, and um, I was on a scholarship. Right. So my their their view was that I was selected for that scholarship for that reason. Mm. And and then looking back. All my mates were on, you know the importance of friendship mm. at college, but all my mates were on a the musical theatre course. All of them. And I do I mean there's we're having a Zoom meeting next Saturday night, it'll be calmage, about six or seven of us. So in, in a lot of ways, the other the other advantage I had was on the musical theatre course when I was there, um, I did ninety-two and ninety-five. When you graduated at Mount View, you came out of the College in April, and I don't think around the time we graduated there were any other showcases on. Right. So it, the showcase was absolutely rammed. Mm. So for a lot of reasons, I did staying on the course stood me in good mm. stead. But I did on two or three occasions, I was like, I want to, I want to try and you know move over, but it wasn't right. allowed. And
0: you grant obviously the graduation process at Mountview. Did you? Mm you did a final show which was a musical i guess
1: yeah it's not like it is now where you kind of you can sign with an agent before you you get to, I, I don't think you can can you sign with somebody before your showcase i
0: think you can but they tend to put you off the idea and wait until yeah wait mm, until mm.
1: yeah we we did shows and they were busy people came but it was a general consensus then was that the agents approached you right at the end of the, basically the day you finished. Mm. So you would come off stage and you would be inundated or you get a little bit of interest or you wouldn't. Um, But I got, I got, I got bombarded. And that sounds really cocky. I don't think it was necessarily a talent issue. I think it was very, very fashionable to have Scottish actors um, because Ewan McGregor just broken through, and Robert Carlyle, David Tennant was coming through, and I think I think a lot of agents were looking for the next big thing that was Scottish. So I think that that was another area that people were. It's ironic, that you're, you know, you you've spoken to some Scottish actors, I'm sure. Um, but it felt like there was interest in me because of the way I spoke, which was a relief in some ways because when I went to college, I always thought, oh, you, have to be, you have to speak posh to go to drama school. It's such an ignorant viewpoint. Mm. But it, again, Mountview were like, no, you keep that accent. We'll teach you some other ones, but you, you keep that accent. And I was quite dogged. Probably my, my, my background and my class, I was like, there's no fucking way that I am going home with a different accent. And I would hear kids come down from Glasgow and change within a fortnight to like, they'd order food in the canteen in a completely different voice. So I always found that weird. Um, and I think I knew that if I was to work, and I didn't know if I would, most of the time, and I say it to my students now when I teach, I say to them, most of the time you work on TV and film, you'll be speaking in your own voice. The one thing my students all wanna know is, what's my casting? What's my casting? And I say to them, this is what I think you might do, but I have no concept of where you will end up. Mm. You know, how many times have you read about an actor that's like, you know, I thought I was a leading man, but ended up playing a villain. Or I thought I was a leading man and I've become this comedy actor. You know, it's it happens all the time.
0: Going to Mountview, I had a very clear strategy, what I wanted to do when I leave. Now, in hindsight, I'm not sure whether that was a good thing or a bad thing, but I've ended up leaving drama school and going into a job and, and playing a role or covering a role that I wanted to do. I know you, that's that Which I needed to do, I think, for my own, uh, yeah. to validate myself, I think, that, yeah, I've done what I set out to do. Now, from, from there on, who knows? But um, I said I want to play Phantom, uh, be in Phantom of the Opera, and they, they didn't see me as that. Um, no, and I don't know whether I was in a different yeah. position then, maybe I looked a bit different. And I think some people leave drama school and they they have this hey world, well, here I am strategy, mm. but sometimes I think it's good to have a very specific Listen, strategy on where yeah, you want to go because the industry is too big. I think
1: I, I teach a lot, I teach a lot of screen acting, I teach in you know three different colleges. Mm. We've unfortunately had to close our course but we've got our own college, me and my missus, who's an actor, you know, Maisie. So basically, one thing I do preach is that you've got to have a strategy. And I was quite determined, a little bit the opposite of you. Although I'd graduated from musical theatre, I was utterly determined not to get stuck in that area. So I deliberately targeted agents and jobs that would allow me to deviate from that i dipped my toe in occasionally but i never ever wanted to get pigeonholed mm. i had a sense of who i was and um, mm. i knew from a very early age uh, i don't mean from a kid i mean from i uh, literally the last few months at mountview i was like nah i'm i'm gonna play a lot of thugs i knew that and then then i got begbie and train spotting um in 96 and to be honest, that's what, 24 years ago? It hasn't it really changed? That's that's how I'm perceived. Um, I'll, I'll, I've got a quick, a little quick story for you. Um, a, a conversation arose at Nina Gold's office, who's the most incredible casting director in the world. She's like the creme, la creme. And Nina and her team, they get me in a lot. Um, but they were looking for a a guy who was in rehab uh, at uh, a drug rehab centre for um for Patrick Melrose, which Benedict Cumberbatch played, and was unbelievable. And I think two or three of them were like, "Where's he from?" They were like Glasgow. They were like Cameron Jack. Um, and I turned up. <laughs> I turned up at the costume fitting, um, and the woman was like actually, what you're wearing is fine. We don't need to put a costume on you. I've just got, I'm a very strong type and I embraced that really early on and I never had any issues with it. And to this day, I, I've i played a few coppers and sort of teachers, but it's very, very rare. I'm, I'm just cast as one thing, generally.
0: Yeah, because they do, I, I think there is this stigma about um, being typecast or... Yeah. But it does, it does seem that you really have embraced totally. that element and, and totally. run Totally, and
1: um, we had a conversation earlier about one of your up, upcoming interviews, um, but that same mm. person that we are discussing that we'll get to later, we had another actor on that job called John Chalice, who plays Boise in Only Fools and Horses, played rather. John, was, right. John kind of took me under his wing. I was really lucky on that job. And John said to me, um, he said this whole thing they tell you at drama school about not getting typecast, he said it's bullshit. He said it's one of the best things that can happen to you. And in my case, it was true, 100%. I just, I just think to, to continue working, you need to ca- try and carve a little niche for yourself. So you need a strategy yourself, you need a bit of luck, you need the right agent. You need to get in the right rooms, um, but if you turn in a few memorable performances as a strong type, I think you become a go-to person for you know. It, listen, don't get me wrong. I mean, last year I was offered, I was offered a line in a film. Um, it was an ice cream van, and it was like something literally as base as "I'm going to fucking murder you." It was literally one or two lines. And I said to Wendy, my agent, I was like, Wendy, that's like, well, I've done that. I said, if there was a meteor scene mm-hmm. or a little bit of backstory or it, it went somewhere, then yes, but that's, you know, we've, we we don't want to repeat ourselves, you know, in, in an uninteresting way. I don't mind repeating myself in an interesting way.
0: So what was your first job after graduating from Mountfield? Yeah, where, um, I, be, I had a very
1: strong... I've, I've had a strategy and I've had a lot of luck, I've had a lot of luck. Um, my first job was Regent's Park um, and in those days, I sound like an old fart, in those days you would get cross-cast in all three shows. So the first thing I did coming out of a musical theatre course was Richard the Third, directed by Brian Cox. Midsummer Night's Dream, directed by John Doyle, who won a Tony Award a bit later for Company in New York. Um, and The Music Man, which was the musical side, which was directed by Ian Talbot, who's a legend.
0: So what was it like, work, you know, one of your first jobs, working with a well-established actor, um, Brian Cox?
1: Um, I'll tell you what I remember. Um, immense knowledge. We, we kind of clicked right away. I liked some from the moment I stepped in the room, I was well prepared, which was a Mountview thing. Um, so I did my Shakespeare speech. I remember I did Caliban from The Tempest and I remember pulling apple cores and snotty hankies out of a bin and like throwing them around the room. Then I did a bit, like I sang a song from Miss Saigon. So Brian was like, that's quite a, that's a bit of range you've got there, son. I just, I'd admired them. I admired them from the theatre stuff, but things like Manhunter. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a brilliant experience. Very, very knowledgeable man. Um, he was fiery and, and incredibly passionate, which I think is a kind of trademark thing that Brian has, which I don't think you can teach anybody. He's incredibly mm-hmm. charismatic, great sense of humour. Doesn't he mind a little bit of cheek? Um, but I don't know if Brian will remember this, but I had, I had an absolute... I don't even know how to describe it. We were doing this marching thing in Richard III Um where the whole cast came forward at the start and they turned the, the red rose to the white rose or vice versa, I can't remember. The Yorks to the Lancasters or vice versa. Anyway, there was a lady in the cast who kept bumping into me um behind me and she had a little bit of a she had a little bit of a booze uh, issue. And she kept bumping into me and she was muttering under her breath. <laughs> and she was I heard her saying, Yeah, fucking YTS actors. Now I did a YTS at school um for 29.50 a week in Marks and Spencer's in Glasgow. I was fucking rotten at that as well. But this mate, I I I lost my temper. I I I literally replaced just that cleared and I was like who the, f- who the fuck are you talking to you know how fucking dare you I don't give a fuck who you are blah 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 <laughs> but Brian and Ian Talbot Brian I don't know if you'll remember this but he literally manhandled me off of the stage up the stairs at Regent's Park took me around the corner to calm down and I remember him saying to me he was like Cameron, he said, you remind me of myself when I was younger, but you can't speak to her like that. (laughs) He said, so go and apologise. And I was like, over my dead fucking body. But I did, I did apologise. And I went and I spoke to her and we got on all right after that. But he, um, he was brilliant. He was, he was fantastic. And then the, the crazy thing was, I had him as a director. And, and I think, I think he looked after me a little bit more than some of the people that were in my position just because I was Scottish and he was always interested in the family side of things and particularly the working class aspect. Um, But he also played Harold Hill in The Music Man. Um, So I got to be directed by him and acted with him as well. Um, I've got to be honest, mate, I know know you're a fan. I have always wanted to get a job where I'm... I'm um, in front of a camera with him, but it's never happened. Touchwood. Mm. wood. Um, mm. You know he's I mean. He's inundated at the moment of work, so but he does go back to Scotland and do he, he does do the odd independent thing. Um, he had a really successful sitcom up there, Bob Servant Independent. Mm. So it, I don't suppose it's out with the realms of possibility, but that would be it. Would be like full circle. But I, I love them, and and I have to say. He's been very supportive um, since since I left college and did that job. We are still in touch. Um, and I wrote an article for a, a website a few years ago, uh, Drama UK, called Life After Drama, School, Life After Drama School. Jude Tisdale, who was a registrar when I was at Mount View, who then became one of the Alexander teachers, lovely woman, was like, write this article and tell them what it's like. So it was a kind of no holds barred thing, and I put it on Facebook. And Brian read it, and he messaged me to say, "There's a lot of really, you know, quite wise words in there." Because I was, you know, I was very honest about, you know, the highs and the lows. Um, Hmm. So I'm a huge fan of his as an actor and as a man, as a teacher, as a writer. Everything he does is just—he's a Scottish icon.
0: Mm. I'm reading a lot of the books that he wrote early on in his career and it's fascinating you just read from salem and moscow didn't you yeah yeah from yeah yeah and i've read the king lear diaries before but i just it's fascinating listening to somebody and and finding his views that he's really enjoyed going back to teaching
1: yeah it does Um, yeah
0: because you learn so much from Mm. it and you you similarly have done a lot of directing and teaching at mountview and drama school do you learn a lot from watching other other students,
1: I am. Um, I didn't really know. How do I put this? As soon as I sat my ass down on the other end of the, the the desk, if you like, my respect for actors shot through the roof. I had to, it was a completely different hat, and I had a lot of good a lot of good directors and a lot of good teachers, Um and one of them said to me always demonstrate to an actor as a last resort don't be one of those directors that gets up and shows them how to do it um and it it, it's difficult sometimes sitting down directing somebody because you kind of want them to get there a lot quicker you have to find them let them find their own way and i found i found with teaching and and directing it I once said to this producer, directing actors is like ego management because some needs to be left alone to get on with it. I think I'm a little bit like that as an actor. Mm. Some mm. needs constant reassurance. Some need a boot up the ass because the timekeeping or the line learning is poor. Some needs, you know, an arm around them. Um, so I learnt all that and I got very good at kind of reading what people needed to... But I think... I think the one thing that people would say my rehearsal room was always fun now when I directed you and um, we had somebody on that team who wasn't fun and um, mm. so I, I found that very difficult and um, because it, it sounds really basic but I think you only get the best from people and certainly from students if you create a safe working environment where people aren't scared to fail mm. and mm. I tried mm. to do that as a director I'll be honest with you in the end I, I kind of burnt out on it a little bit because I think I went I probably directed about 13 or 14 plays in a row I was off directing pantos and writing them and enjoyed it, but I got I got burnt out on it because I, I felt towards the end of two or three shows I did, I'd maybe had two or three actors in each cast who brought a lot of neg- negative energy into the room. And I couldn't, I just, I ran out of steam. Um, mm-hmm. But teaching students, and I, and I primarily teach the screen acting side, teaching students is brilliant because they're receptive. They're not cynical yet. They are, they're like sponges, which is a cliche, but they are. And that becomes a joy because you can kind of if you're smart enough you can mold them a little bit but but also let them kind of flourish in their own way but always try and be positive on everything whether I'm you know I'm doing a voiceover or I'm filming something or I'm teaching or I'm you know doing a podcast i i, I got i got this sounds wanky but i got to live my dream i got to do what i wanted to do so there were never any negatives for me, obviously at the moment. It's a fucking nightmare for all of us. Hmm. Um, hmm. But I just kind of try and batten down the hatches and, you know, get up my teeth and it'll come round again. You know, you mentioned Trainspotting.
0: Yeah. Um and I wanted to ask you if this uh, if this I, I read somewhere, I don't know whether it was quoted or misquoted, but is the story true about you turning up at a casting director's house to ask to audition for the Trainspotting film? Yeah, no that's
1: true. That's true. So what happened was I I was doing musical theatre in Mountview and then um, I was going out with a girl in Stutler and she said to me um That must have been my birthday or something. She said, I'm taking you to see a play. So she took me to see Trainspotting at the Bush Theatre, right? Um, And Ewan Bremner, who plays Spud, played Renton, the Ewan McGregor part. Um, There was another wonderful Scottish actor called Malcolm Shields in it, who played Begbie, very physical actor. Um, God forgive me, but I can't remember the other two actors. I think maybe Susan Vidler was uh, the girl. Um, But I was... I, my jaw dropped at them. I was like, fucking hell, this is unbelievable. So then I read the book. And then I, when I left, right. I signed with a brilliant agent called Michelle Braidman, who represented June Bremner at that time. She also represented Malcolm Shields. Um, and I I just remember saying to her, no, in fact, I, it was before I signed with Michelle, I got the information that Gail Stevens was casting the film at Garrick Street. And uh, I blagged my way in on the intercom. I was like, I've got a delivery. And I went upstairs and I knocked the door and (laughs) I was like, I want to be in this film. And the guy that came to the door was like, what the fuck are you doing here? I was like, I want to be in it, I love it. So she, she auditioned me and I remember her asking me, she said, you don't know any Scottish girls that look like they could be in a nightclub, but also look like they could wear a school uniform. And I was like, "Yeah, I know a couple," which was the Kelly McDonald part. Um, so I didn't get it. Um, I also went for Train Spotting two. Um, Gail, bless her, she keeps trying. Maybe Train Spotting three. So, but but I never got that. But I got the play in '96. So I was Begby and Gerard Butler was Rent, and it was I think Jerry's. A lot of people say it was his first job. He'd actually done a few things before that. But that was an amazing experience. What with him? Because he, of course, played Phantom in a film, didn't he?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah he did. Yeah, he was in a yeah.
1: band. He was in a rock band when we were doing that, Jerry. I'm still in touch so, with Jerry so as
0: well. Because his big break, I guess, I think I'm not sure if it was before Phantom. Mm. Was Phantom his the, movie break or the, was it Three Hundred? I
1: think the breakthrough really, if you if you know if you know his career well enough, um, would be Mrs. Brown, where he played Billy Connolly's brother. Right. And then the the sort of thing that brought him to recognition was Dracula 2000, directed by Wes Craven. But then, really, it would be potentially then Phantom, because I think 300 was after Phantom, wasn't it? 300, I think, was the thing that that blew him up to a kind of stellar star. Um, But he, he, listen, he was unbelievably charismatic, Jerry. And just had a quality that one in a million people have got. He, he, he was a movie star from fucking from a very young age, Jerry. It's absolutely no coincidence that's where he's ended up. But another another guy another guy that that that's kept in touch and, and is just like you know supportive.
0: Doing um, train spotting at that time mm. must have been. Vi- it was
1: book, play, film. And then some very clever producers went, well, I put a play out before the film, but let's put the play out now. So these four actors, you played a lot of different parts. So I played Begbie. I played Begbie's mum. I played the guy that, Mr. Mackay that interviewed Spuds. It was in a mate I played Johnny Swan, um, the mother superior, the drug dealer, like, all walking about naked on stage. I mean, it was it was fucking shocking. And, um, and we I remember me and Jerry and, and Glenna and Tom Walker, the four of us, and the two understudies, going to a drug rehabilitation centre in Soho to learn how to inject heroin. Now, obviously, we never injected the heroin, but the the the, the drug addicts were saying, so this is actually so got to tap the barrel of the syringe so you don't get any bubbles that go into your blood. And they showed us how to cook up and use a tourniquet. So we brought all this on stage, not with the needles, obviously, and renting his hand down the toilet. But do you know what, mate? It was like doing a fucking rock concert because it was an odd one because we would go and do like... I remember going to Rotherham and doing a 60-seater studio. And the following week, we were in Blackpool and it was a 3,000-seater and it was sold out all week. So imagine going to places like Edinburgh That Glasgow. This, This little play with four actors... Um, and a few costumes and a mattress and a toilet was selling out to 3000 seat venues. It was like a rock concert. It was, it was very of its time. Um, and I think the whole mm-hmm. drug culture and ecstasy coming through and people just wanted to come and see it. It was a top-selling show in Edinburgh at the festival in 96. And all sorts of people came to see it. One thing that I do remember happening, we opened the show in Galway, at the uh, Arts Festival. So it was like a big celebration of theatre. And Michael D. Higgins, who became the like the, TESOC, the, the Prime Minister uh, of Ireland, he was the Arts Minister at the time. Absolutely disgusting. Walked out, big article in the paper, there is no place for this this absolute mm. filth on a theatre stage in, in, in Ireland then we went to Dublin and Cork and it just blew but I always was quite proud of that that he couldn't sit through it
0: mm. uh, obviously the, your first early sort of experiences of doing the Regent's Park yeah. open air was a bit like rap you got to flex your muscles in terms of doing a bit of theatre yeah. a bit of a contemporary play yeah. a musical
1: learning loads Were of you- parts as well you had to learn so many parts mental.
0: And then, were you hankering after doing some television? You were, you did some television yeah, during that period, I did, right? I did TV straight after it,
1: and you, we go back to that word strategy. I I said to Michelle Bradman, my agent at the time, I said, "I don't want to get stuck doing one thing. I want it. I want to do everything." Um, so I ended up in a kids' TV show called Harry's Mad, which was straight after Regent's Park. I think I finished in September and that was the October. So already, and then I went and did a panto after that. And then I think like a short film after that. So I'd already moved around a lot. The one, the one thing that I couldn't crack was film. I could not get, nobody would consider me for, for film roles. They just wouldn't do it.
0: More from Cameron in a moment. Why not follow Brewing Actors podcast on the Spotify app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, why not leave a review? Sit down, relax, and listen to Brewing Actors
1: podcast with a cup of Coal Town coffee. Coaltown coffee is roasted on-site at our HQ and Roastery in Ammonford, South Wales. Our coffee is sustainable and ethically sourced. And we believe the fairer the deal between producer and farmer, the higher the quality and taste of the coffee in your cup. Use the code BREWINGACTORS10 to receive 10% off your orders at coaltowncoffee.co.uk.
0: I'm Adam Robert Lewis, and you're listening to the Brewing Actors podcast. I continue my conversation with Cameron Jack. You did television and then you sort of had a stream of being cast in well known musicals. Or what we now yeah, know yeah, as well. Know. Well, Lim is. Obviously we will rock you yeah. the original cast.
1: Yeah, I was in the first first two years, yeah.
0: Did you I, I know you said when you were at drama school you sort of thought I wanna move away from musicals and mm. do more straight acting and television did you no. were you reluctant to go and do musicals or yeah. were you just thinking oh, yeah well.
1: i was no i was reluctant um i'll be brutally honest i couldn't get a job as an actor um as a, as a as a tv actor um i, I had a bit of a meltdown around in 98 i the basically the phone stopped ringing adam and i was i was shocked i was like so i've i've come out and i've like every box is ticked and it just seems to have stopped. But I think what happened was as an actor, you mature, you change physically. And also my head went down and um, the little, the positivity that I carried and the, the kind of love that I had for it, the kind of the rejection got on top of me. Um, and I remember going for a regular in the whole, no casualty it would have been in, Mid to late nineties, maybe ninety eight, seven ninety eight, and a few of my mates were up for the same job. And the casting director phoned the agent and said, "I don't know what's happened to him, but he just looks like kind of defeated and a bit beaten." And yeah, it took me it probably took me about a year and a half to two years to come out of that kind of like it was it was a few kind of personal issues plus. The, the constant rejection, it just got to me. And um, when the chance came round to just work again, um, and also I needed I needed some financial stability, um, the chance came up to do Les Mis, um which was a big tick for a lot of people. It was never a, a, something that I sort of had a a deep-seated... I'm very proud to have been in it. Um, and it's an amazing thing. Thing on your CV certainly, I think as an actor in general, not just as a musical theatre actor. But I am. Um, I stayed for a year and then I was offered another contract. I took that. That was another nine months. That was a mistake. Um, I, 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 I struggled to fit in a little bit with the you know not the company but the. Where to put me? They never seemed quite sure. I got moved around a lot, um, but I have to say, after is I went and we rock you. And I think just that, that was like a I mentioned train spot and being like a rock concert. Yeah, I would. That was an amazing. I did two years there. It was an amazing two years. I've got friends for life. I loved working with a band. We were, you know, wheeled out at party, you know, party in the park. was so hundred thousand people. Um, the Queen's Jubilee concert. Um, we were on Parkinson. We were on children in need. I loved that. I loved that job. And I think, to be honest, I, when I left there, I was like, "It's not going to get any better than that for me." Um, and also, my voice was going. I um, had quite a strong voice, and I noticed towards the end of rock you probably through developing some bad technique and not keeping my lessons up, my voice was going downhill and. I just felt, yeah, I I, I need to kind of, don't get me wrong, I did two or three after that, um, a couple of flops as well, which I've got to do. Um, But I always had my eye on going in another direction. Sorry, in answer to your question, the financial stability was a factor. And just being able to to have a structure to work in was, was, was the main reason that I dipped my toe back in
0: i think you know long-running shows and obviously oh. coming from the perspective that i have been in a show for a few years now and i yeah. stay so i've been in phantom four years
1: yeah how do you I, find that though? do you know um do you, do you not get stuck crazy
0: in my nature i'm somebody who i don't like to you know lay my roots for very long i I get quite restless but yeah the the reason why i stayed for so long is when i joined um they would tell they were the advice was you need to go away and then we'll come back and you'll play it or you'll cover it and i just had a gut feeling that that wasn't going to work for me i needed Mm. to be i want to achieve this while i'm here and if it's going to take yeah. me 10 years, it takes me 10 years. I'm glad it only took me, it only took me three. And I thought, Amazing. you know, I've achieved, but I do, it is tough because I think, but what I find hard sometimes is doing a long running show. It's not, it's great financially and it, you know, yep. you've got a weekly wage at the end of every week, but it, takes, it does take you out of the running for virtually 80% of everything else that's going on in that year. That's
1: what I struggled with. That's what I struggled with, and I would hear about things and think, I oh, wish I was up for that. Um, you were about to mention South Pacific, a, yeah. a few minutes ago. I'll be brutally honest with you again. That was a job that made me go, I'm done. Yeah. I can't. I can't possibly. Have I spoken to you about that?
0: No, because I would. No, I was just about to ask about it because when I was looking at your CV, mm. I saw that that was the sort of end of musicals, mm. really.
1: Yeah, it was done after that. Um, I had that was a job I won't go into it too much um, that was a job where I think I was I had two other authors on the table two, two other different musicals and I picked the wrong one um, I had an offer to go to Germany to do Rocky Horror um, and I had an offer to do a show in the UK on a tour but I thought the prestigious choice <laughs> and the best for my CV which is often the reason you pick a job was South Pacific, but I didn't have enough to do. I didn't have enough to do in the show. And I was developing habits that meant, (laughs) it was very difficult for me to do the same thing every night. It always was. But as I got older, I was like, I'm going to have to change this. And people can't deal with that. People don't like it. Resident Mm. directors don't like it. Directors don't like it. Producers don't like it. Um, That wasn't, the main issue, we would a lot of, we a lot of personality clashes, and I'm the sort of person that wants everybody to be happy, it sounds like a bit, a bit twee, but I am, and I spent so much time kind of patching things up for people and, and with people, that in the end, mate, I was shattered, and I just was like, that. Does it was like energy vampires throughout the whole show, you mm-hmm. know, some mm-hmm. lovely people mm-hmm. on it. Um, there really was, but but there were incidents, and you know we'd a little bit of racism. In fact, it wasn't a little bit of racism; it was it was bad. Um, the bit of homophobia, um, and I just decided, and I turned forty as well, and I was like, nah, nah, and I found the management on that job extremely poor. They would they wouldn't they wouldn't pull people aside and and um, kind of. Put them on the right path. They would, they would just kind of hide in their office and ignore it. Um, so by the time I left, um, I actually, actually went in for Lion King after that. For um, I think it was, I can't even remember the part. But I was in a, I was in a puppet, and uh, I watched all these other actors, ads, get up and do it. Right, they were all better than me. All, all better than me. The movement, the voices, um. The rhythm, the sense of like musicality. The resident said to me, Cameron, you're what we're looking for. You're, you're just going to need a little bit of work. But I went downstairs and I said, I phoned my agent and I was like, never again. She was like, whatever. I went, "Not until I tell you again, um, we're done. Um, but I did go in for the Cats film. Oh, did you? <laughs> <laughs> because it was to play Andres Elba, Ray Winston got it, but it was to play Andres Elba's sidekick, and, yeah. a, and also Lucy Bevin is an unbelievably talented casting director, and her team, Olivia, uh, Olivia Grant, and and the people that work there, they're like incredible. So I just wanted to go in and see them, and don't mm. get me wrong, I, I wanted the gig. Um, I, I, I do tend to say. I do tend to say no. I still get the odd sniff. People come round and go, would they be interested? And I'm like, nah, nah. There's a couple of things I'd like to play. I'd like to play Bill Sykes. Mm -hmm. You'd be good at that, by Mm -hmm. the way. I'd like to do that. Um, Probably a bit on the short side. Um, Yeah, so if if the part was right and the money was right, because I've got Alba now, I may consider signing up for a longer time, but it never gave me any joy,
0: ever. Mm, mm. So you you do a few musicals, you get to South Pacific and you realise, nah, this is just not for me. And then it's nah. almost like, I, I sometimes people call it the God wink. And then all of yeah. a sudden comes yeah. The Dark Knight Rises. So totally. how did yep. that happen? How did you hear about the project? So, yeah, so here's, here's
1: what happened. I am... Um, I was. I mentioned. I've had a couple of, as we all do, doing what we do. I've had a couple of like dips when it hasn't. When it, when things have dried up, and you have a wobble, and um, surprisingly, I did the Dark Knight Rises before South Pacific. It just came out during South right, Pacific.
0: Right.
1: So. Um, but it was another reason that I shouldn't have taken the South Pacific job. I should have waited and kind of capitalized on the fact that I'd just done a massive feature film, but I, I just wanted to work and I needed, you know, a, financial responsibilities and I needed to do some stuff. And anyway, so, so I had a wobble and the agent I was with at the time, I just phoned her one night and I was like, lovely, lovely girl, Claire. And I was like, Claire, I'm, 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 I'm done I'm gonna I don't i i am am know if I'm gonna keep acting I don't know it was just a bad bad spell I don't know if I'm gonna keep acting I don't know if I'm gonna you know move back home and try and work up there I don't know what I'm doing but what I'm not gonna do is hang around like a bad smell giving you shit blah 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 mm. and she was shocked because we were a really good team and she took me out for dinner and she gave me a few home truths that you know that my timekeeping was becoming poor my my attitude to some of the jobs I was being put up for was not the best and um, so she was very truthful with me and she said well what do you want to do I was like I, I want to do a film I'm, I'm desperate to do a film and she's like well we've never had that conversation really that you're you know you feel like it's the be all and end all so about a week later, I got this call saying uh, you're in for a low budget superhero film shooting in Bulgaria. It's called Magnus Rex.
0: Was that like a, a, a cover up? Yeah,
1: yeah. So Chris Nolan, um, I think Inception or Memento was called as Oliver's Arrow. He always uses one of his kids' names, right? And right. he adds a kind of spin on it. Well, he did at that point. So I went in to see Toby Whale for this low budget. She said it's only a ten million dollar film, and I was like, "Fucking hell, that's a lot of money." <laughs> um, so I went in, and there was no pressure. But she did say to me when I'd finished, um, "She said we think it might be Captain America," and I was like, "Wow!" Which was shooting at the same time. So I went in, and I had to—I'd learnt the scene, and I had to um, I had to mug somebody in the scene. And uh, I, I, I've, had a, I've got a quite good American accent, and. Toby seemed really pleased. It was a weird one because normally you stand in front of the camera and you do your stuff to the person that's closest to the lens. But it was, it was handheld and they moved around me. Um, so I came out, that was a Tuesday, before me and went, you've got that film. And I was like, brilliant. She went, it's not Magnus Rich. She said, it's The Dark Knight Rises. And I was like, I was 39. I was about, yeah, it was just a few months short of my 40th birthday that that landed. And then so of Tuesday, I got submitted for it. The Tuesday I was, the following Tuesday, I was told I was doing it. And the following Tuesday, I was on set. And you can imagine, here's how mad it is. I hadn't worked from January till May. I, I, I was playing the Dame in Panto at Basildon. And my next job was doing scenes with Tom Hardy and Hathaway and Gary Oldman. Yeah. that's and it was like a six month and and do you know what mate i don 't mind admitting it. I was standing there and I was like i 'm about to get fucking found out i 'm like i 've blagged my way in um but what I did was i just'cause because i'd watched so much film, I kind of knew that stylistically everything had to be a lot smaller, but I watched Dan Hathaway I had to stand behind her um and i like hold a gun up to her head. I thought, Mate, you'll love this. I thought I was in short. I was giving it all my best, like, fucking looks. It was literally, like, <laughs> my belly in my hand with a gun. Um, but I watched her, and I watched a lad called Byrne Gorman, who's an amazing British actor, um, who's been in things like Layer Cake and, mm. and stuff like that. And I watched the two of them, Adam, and I was like, fucking hell, this is unbelievable. But everything, it was almost whispered. It was like everything was so small, so when I when I tuned into what the other people were doing, Gary Oldman, Tom Hardy, I mean, how can you not learn from those people? Mm-hmm. When it came my turn to run my dialogue, I kind of knew where I was pitching, but Chris did say to me, he was like, "Just take it down a little bit." I was like, "That's the musical theatre training, darling." <laughs> um, and it, unfortunately, well, mate, I, I had one really good scene where we battered. Gary Oldman over the head with a rifle. And uh, we had, had a line, had a line, the other guy says like, I was like, oh Jesus. And he's like, what is it? I was like, it's a police commissioner. And he said, what do we do? And I had a line, Chris said, look off to your right and then look back at Lex and say, let's take him to Bain. And I was like, this is going to be oh, a fucking That's big a trailer
0: moment. moment. That's a trailer moment.
1: Yeah.
0: Let's take him to Bain.
1: And... I sat at the casting crew screening. Cut <laughs> the whole fucking thing was cut because he's such a good director mm. and, and, that you just didn't need that moment. Mm. Mm. Um, but it was a brilliant experience. I was only there just over a week. Um, Where did they it me? Gave me a uh, mate. So we were looking at we were looking at maybe Pittsburgh, India, Scotland was mentioned, and I ended up in Clerkenwell in East London, and in an aircraft hangar in Cardington in Bedford. That, that was where I filmed The Dark Knight Rises. So in this aircraft hangar in Cardington was the whole of Gotham and the Batmobile and uh, Bane's lair, Batman's, oh everything's there in this massive aircraft hangar. I think the next aircraft hangar along, take that one, rehearsing for a concert. These places are vast. So but it gave, it gave me a lot of confidence I was mm-hmm. I wasn't quite so unsure when I would go for an audition about being capable of doing the job I just thought well you know a box is ticked so let's try and do more
0: of that mm-hmm. what was it like did you get to speak to Gary Olman I I spoke to him um did you lap it up did you want to? I love that he's my favorite
1: actor right. he's he's like he's my hero um he's he's the only actor I think twice it's happened to me. I've stood next to this actor. The other one was Benedict Cumberbatch. And I've thought, it's like there's an electricity coming off of them. Like uh, like they're charged. And it's uh, there's so much going on behind their eyes and in their body. And I watched them prep for a scene, Gary Oldman, um, that I was doing with them, where we battered them over the head, which was actually cut. But he was so so conscientious and, like, smart and, and gracious. But basically, w- when we were on a break, um, I told him, I said, I watched a film in 1987 called The Firm,
0: mm.
1: which was directed by Alan Clark, and he played Bexie, the estate agent, and he walks down the street and he opens the scene and he's chewing gum and he's got a pencil moustache. This was before you know, True Romance and Dracula and all those things. And I remember thinking, who the fuck is that? Um, And I just, it made me want to be an actor and I told him and then we got, he was flattered, but we got speaking about his history at the Citizen's Theatre in Glasgow. Oh
0: yeah. um, Mm.
1: Which was a massively prestigious, still is, place to work and how much he loved the city. Um, But he was, he was lovely and... Just everything you would hope one of your heroes would be. He was, he he ticked every box. Amazing man. What an actor though, eh?
0: Yeah. What's
1: your, what's your, your favourite Gary Oldman performance? Um, Most people would go for Churchill.
0: I I don't, I liked him in Churchill, don't get me wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I'm a huge fan of uh, Francis Ford Coppola, and I yeah. I love him in Dracula. It's, it's all it's overwritten and whatever. But I've yep, since yep. watched the documentary making of that, and yeah. the level of commitment he brings—not when they say action, but before. Yeah. And they did this oh. scene where they blindfolded Hopkins, um, mm. a few of the other actors, and he was dressed as the bat, like dracula and yeah. he was whispering the most filthiest and horrific thing in people's ears to get him ready yeah. for this scene and mason yeah. verger hannibal
1: unbelievable uh, unbelievable
0: they, like one of the i think the, the special effects guy in the documentary about hannibal said When Mm. they said Gary was going to play it, we knew that he would let us do whatever we wanted to him. They pulled his eye and they manipulated his... Yeah, but it's the voice as well, isn't it? it? It's the way he manipulated... There's very few actors, I think, and talking about being um, in a niche... I don't think you can box Gary Oldman. You can't
1: because if you look at if you look at Mason Verger, which I think is one of his greatest performances, and you look at the darkest hour, and you look at Drexel in True Romance, what mm, is this he's mm, sort of yeah, white like masked yeah, yeah. um and you look at the villains um, that he's played in things like Leon, mm. and then his mad Russian villain in Air Force One. Mm. You just cannot put him in a. You can't. You can't put him anywhere. He's remar- I mean, he is truly remarkable. Mm, but mm-hmm. I did think that about Benedict Cumberbatch as well. I was at the read-through for that. And he is he's something very special. And in a different way, you know, um, but he's a remarkable actor. And it's in 20-odd years, I've, I've, I've worked with some amazing actors, but only twice have I thought, which is what you thought when you worked with me on Guys and Dolls, didn't
0: you? Yeah, that's exactly what I thought. You <laughs> <laughs> used, used to scare the shit out of me. No, mate, you were, I was, you were a joy. I, I remember I forgot. I, I, I literally thought, bollocks to it. I'm not going to learn these letters. They're too bloody long. We've only had like... Yeah, you wrote, did you write it down? So I wrote it all down and yeah. uh, turned, <laughs> turned up to the rehearsal and you stood up, walked over to me, looked around my back, looked at it and you just went, twat yeah yeah I I, I just think and I never I learn every fucking word now Uh, and I I, I, that that scene plays out that scene plays out for me and I won't allow anybody to do that to me
1: (laughs) that's exactly what I would have done mate when I was in your position I'd have been like let's bomb proof this so I can't fuck up (laughs) Um, oh brilliant
0: but no so obviously since The Dark Knight you've now moved into a lot more uh, television and film but a lot more film yeah does yeah. it in an industry where you started out in a musical theater course doing some straight mm. plays then mainly doing musicals for yeah. a bit of advice for somebody maybe a bit like me or somebody who has mm. spent a lot of years in musical theater and I yeah. think America has a much healthier view on this I could be different,
1: wrong different although, but yeah.
0: we seem to struggle to break through that stigma.
1: We do. Maisie, Maisie and I talk about this a lot because in, when you watch most American dramas if you watch Hollywood for example mm. there are two or three people in that who are Broadway stars we just don't have it here um, if, I could, if, if I could give advice to somebody who wanted to make the leap from one to the other um, I would say two things that are important but not easy to do One is to get the right agent that can get you in the rooms Um, because you can be the best actor in the world. If you're not getting seen for stuff, you're not on anybody's radar. So that's important. And and a lot of actors say to me, you know, why can't I get seen for, you know, stuff at the BBC or ITV or soaps or films? It's usually usually down to the agent. And unfortunately, a lot of agents would make promises uh, when a student's got maybe six or seven offers on the table and not follow through with those promises. So I think it's it goes back to strategy. If, if anybody wants to make that leap, they have to honestly ask if they've got the right representation to get them into that room. The second thing, which is also fucking difficult, is you need to put yourself at work because you mentioned earlier when you, you were doing Phantom, you... You, you literally miss out on, you said 80%. It's probably 95% of everything else. Unless something's, you know, shooting on your mat any day or your Sunday or Monday off or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And and what shoots then? Nothing. Because, because the thing is about TV and film, they want you, if you're lucky, they want you for a few weeks um, or a few months even. So you've got to be available. And, um, But Gary Davey, who's an amazing bloke and a brilliant casting director, he does Strike Back and Liar, um, the most immense casting director. He cast me in something called He Kills Coppers in 2008. And I went into the room for the audition and he said to me, I really like you, Cameron. He said... The only problem is he said i've given up almost because every time i call you're in a year's contract so you've signed on for a second year somewhere he said and so you just you you got out of my mind and um, he said it just so happened you were free when i called you for this but i do think had that gone on a year or two i would probably never have got in to see him so i said to him are you in effect saying to me that i need to be out of work and he said if you want to make the leap you do which is tricky. Financially, it's tricky. Mm, and, mm. and spiritually, it's tricky. And mentally, it's tricky. But you have to allow yourself time to transition from one thing to another because it's not like America here. And you have to, you have to be quite dogged about it and determined.
0: Mm. As, as time has gone on and you've done a lot more films, worked with various different directors... Mm. Do you feel yeah. your acting for camera technique is really honed now? Do you know?
1: I found it quite addictive. Once I am, um, once I started doing it, I, I just liked the style of it. I mean, it, there's no, there's there's nothing profound about that. I just like the smallness of it, the, the how to pitch it. Um, I think a little bit of me was when I was doing feet. I always felt like there was an unrealistic kind of aspect to it. And I like doing things that, that have kind of a real sort of grittiness to them. Um, the other thing is, if you fuck up, you can go back and fix it. So I always quite liked that as well, that, that there was a chance to redeem yourself if you made an arse of it, which I've done a few times. Um, but it's, it's, a diff, it's a different thrill because it's like, I think when you're doing a show you have to kind of, you have to sort of measure your energy throughout the the, the the course of the three hours that you're in that building performing. I think with TV, it's a massive adrenaline high on repeat. Um, then that might be followed by four hours of sitting in your trailer, texting your mates or, you know, being stood down for three days and then going back to do another crazy day. Um so it's very different, but but an old actor said to me once, "You don't get paid in film for the work you do; you get paid for sitting around," um, which is true. There's a fucking shitload of sitting around, but I'm a lazy bastard, so I quite like that.
0: So, I just to wrap really, I wanted to talk about mm. the the screen acting school that you've set up, yeah. the Essex School of Screen yes. Acting. So, um yeah. tell me, you know, tell us a bit about it.
1: So basically. We we moved out of uh, I moved to London in ninety two and I stayed there twenty-seven years. Sometimes I don't know how it lasted. I was always I was always aware that I was in London for work, but when we knew that Alba was coming, who's now fifteen months, we we just wanted to live somewhere quieter. So um we are down in Thorpe Bay, which is near South End on Sea. We're 30 seconds walk from the beach You've probably seen me on there on Instagram ads <laughs> with my daughter in the morning. Um, and it's just a completely different pace. Mm. We we wanted to, you know yourself as, a, as an actor. You need sidelines. You need other revenue mm. streams. Mm. And we just, we both, we ran a self-tape company, um, which was pretty successful in London.
0: When you, lived, no in, when you lived in Beckenham?
1: Yep when we lived in near Beckenham. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wish I did live in Beckenham, yeah. mate. I lived in Penge. Um, uh Lower Beckenham. Um, so basically, that, we enjoyed that. We enjoyed the, the teaching the actors, work, not teaching, but kind of helping the actors to get this perfect self-tape. And we just, we both have a huge interest, me and Maze, in TV, film, sitcom, drama, you know, and it just seemed like a natural fit. Maze. Has got a business brain. I'm, fuck it, I'm useless, mate. Mm. I'm terrible at that. I enjoy the teaching side of it. Um, so we work with actors of different levels of experience. Some are going to drama school, others are professional actors. Sometimes agents send actors saying um, just give them a term of technique to brush up. And we work with some amazing scripts we cover period drama we cover us drama we cover the technical side you know mid shots and you know close-ups head and shoulders extreme close-ups long shots the cowboy shot Do you know what a cowboy shot is no it's a three-quarter shot which was invented so that the gun in westerns ah, would sit and show right, right. so it's, it's called a three-quarter shot a cowboy shot so we teach we teach all that stuff um but i love it i love I love actors generally, not all of them, but generally I love the kind of camaraderie in class. I was fortunate enough just before the shit hit the fan, um, I did a, my last film was with Guy Ritchie and I went out to Los Angeles. Mm. So I've made some good contacts um, with some of the people that Guy works with regularly. So once we get up and running again, I'm hoping to get you know some good guests down uh, to... to um, to speak to the actors and just kind of... But as I said earlier, we teach very positively. We're, we're encouraging. We don't like any negativity in the class, you know. So anybody with that shit, is they don't last very long with us, I'm afraid.
0: You mentioned LA. Uh, what is yes. it like a shooting in LA?
1: What, what's the dynamic right, so, like?
0: Because I hear so many different <sighs> things about it.
1: Yeah, so I am... Um that was the one box that i'd never ticked was doing a film in los angeles and it came about in the most bizarre way but i ended up there by accident really um and i um i went there I was very excited because I just, it just—it goes back to my dad sitting watching Jack Robert Nicholson Mitchell. and Ryan mm, O'Neill mm. and Robert Mitchum and mm. Shelley Winters and the Poseidon Adventure and the Towering Inferno. So there I was. Um, it wasn't—it wasn't as organised as I thought it would be. It, we are we are ten times more organised here. We're we are a well-oiled machine here compared to Ellie, to I think. And some of the actors and the crew said that to me. They're like, you guys are like the envy of the world. You're so organised when you shoot films. Um, I'll be brutally honest. It wasn't, it wasn't all that I thought it would be because it was kind of like, how do I put this? I loved, I loved the, the film, the, the script, working with Guy, working with Jason Statham. I loved all that. But I just felt, it felt to me like the heart had gone out the industry a little bit in LA. And one dude that I was working with who is also a producer was like, we'd become too expensive to make films. So um, he said a lot of the really, really good stuff is going to the UK and, and, and Europe. And I've shot films in Romania, Bulgaria. Um, so you don't, I don't think you need to go to LA now to get that to be part of that higher sort of echelon. Mm. Although it would be amazing. I think it's very difficult to do that without American representation or a good agent here. Um, I would go back in a heartbeat, but I tick the box and... I'd be very, very happy just to continue doing films and TV in the UK and round Europe because I love the, the travelling. That's another thing about the theatre. You know, you just... You, I know touring is travelling, but, you know, Sunderland and Stoke, you know, it, they're not as exciting, no disrespect to you lovely people up there, as going to, you know, Romania to shoot What Happened to Monday or, you know, going to Bulgaria to do Death Race Beyond Anarchy. <laughs> With Danny (laughs) Trejo. Oh, mate. There's been some bizarre experiences.
0: Thanks to my guest, Cameron Jack, and thanks to you for listening. If you want to find out more information about the Essex School of Screen Acting, then visit com. I'm Adam Robert-Lewis... And you've been listening to The Brewing Actors Podcast.